Good morning, Hope Church. Oh, that was pretty good. I thought Keith might have spoken a bit too early and we were going to have to get out the whip, get everybody talking. But we, uh, we are not muzzled oxen this morning. I'm on. I'm on back here. I'm, I'm, I'm confident that's not on mute on my side. John Stallard, the music man that everybody's now looking at. You'll get there. We trust you. You'll do great. Uh, my name's Tom. Good to see everybody. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14. Can you open up there this morning? We're continuing our, our exposition and our journey through this amazing book, the Gospel of Mark. And uh, at the moment, it's, um, it's all just getting worse for Jesus. There, there's, there's been no, no part of the, the last few weeks that we've been looking at that has been an upshot, that has been a, an improvement, a, uh, an uphill um, a, 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 a advantage for him at all. It's all been going downhill. So he's, he started, of course, with the, the Lord's Supper. Um, they were there. He spent it with his friends. But even then... As, as he's instituting the, the last Passover, the first Lord's Supper, even there, a betrayer, Judas, leaves him and he's, he's throwing a shadow over the whole meal with his, with his statement that, that, that uh, uh, all of them will fall away from him. So, so it started there. Even the high point was a low point. And then he went over into the Garden of Olives and though he was praying in communion with the Father, that's a high point, yet he was sweating drops of blood because of his anxiety over the wrath that he is yet to drink, that that's a low point. And then after that, his, his friends are falling asleep around him instead of praying with him. Another low point. And then he gets arrested. Peter chops a guy's ear off. Jesus has to heal it. He gets taken away. And all of his disciples do as he prophesied they would. They run away from him. So, so Jesus' night has just been getting worse and worse and worse. This Thursday evening, the, the last Passover night, as he fulfills the ceremonial spiritual point of the Passover which was to be that lamb sacrificed for the family of God so that all those who believe in Christ Jesus are unified to the eldest son and have your lives spared. That is the good news of the gospel that we hold so tightly to. So Jesus has been getting more and more forsaken. And what we saw last week was that he was, he was taken by the, the crowd of, of Roman soldiers and Jewish soldiers and Levites and priests and chief elders. He was taken, he was dragged to the house of the mafia boss, Annas. That's how we have to picture it. Because as we're going to read this little section tonight of, of this morning, I mean, of Peter's denial of Jesus, it's all happening in sort of the the, the the, the, the Justice House courtyard. But the Justice House is actually Annas's house. So it's his personal courtyard. This is how they used to build large mansions back in the old day. You'd, you'd have the main house, a huge sort of horseshoe-shaped uh, wall around your property, and then your son-in-laws and your sons would all build their houses attached to your beautiful villa around the courtyard. So we'd have a large central entertaining area for parties, etc., etc. Oh, and also, if you're the high priest who sits on top of the Supreme Court of the area, it's also the court the court system. So in his own backyard with most of the Sanhedrin, that's the court justices, that's, they're all mostly his family or people that he has appointed. So, so you've just got this mafia boss at the head of the judicial system, at the head of the spiritual system. He is calling all of the shots. 
And his son-in-law, totally his puppet, his son-in-law is technically the head of the Sanhedrin, but Annas is the one who is puppeting him all along. So, so here Jesus is taken, and John's gospel tells us he first was judged uh, and tried before Annas, and then verse 15 Uh, sorry, chapter 15, verse 1, which we'll see next week, once it was morning, they had to sort of tick the the legal box of having a a court uh, session during daylight hours because it was illegal to condemn somebody during the night. And this whole thing has been illegal. They have a quick check the box uh, uh, court session in the morning and then take them off to the Gentiles, Pilate and Herod, to be judged. But we're in this section tonight. We're in this part where we've seen some of Jesus uh, being condemned and questioned and false witnesses brought against him before Annas, and now we read at yet another low point, just as you think Jesus' night can't get any worse, and maybe you thought Peter's night couldn't get any worse. Here is Peter in the lowest moment of his life, verse 66 of chapter 14. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know um, nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, Hey, this man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down. And wept. May God bless the reading of his word in our midst this morning, Hope. <clears throat> to watch a crash and burn take place is a melancholy, horrible thing. Maybe, maybe you've watched plenty of uh, race car, uh, 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 races on TV, or maybe you're, you're one of those mullet-wearing guys who will go to the actual races and watch them, or maybe you've been somewhat involved in aircraft, or at least watched the shows and you've watched aircraft crash and burn. It is a, it is a melancholy thing. It's worse when, when it's in the sort of scenario where the people haven't taken on all of the intentional uh, extreme risks. Maybe, maybe you've seen a crash go horribly wrong on the highway. Maybe you've seen that. It's a, it's a horrible and a melancholy thing to see something you can't stop, but you know is having catastrophic uh, ends occur right before your eyes. The Hindenburg was a, we'll probably know it as a as a blimp, a huge football-shaped aircraft that we don't really use that much anymore except for advertisement. But back in the 1900s, especially around the 30s, these things were really gaining popularity as a way to get across large uh, 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 parts of the ocean in extremely short distance, uh, extremely short times. So, so, so there was this, this Hindenburg that had been crafted and built in the 1930s by none other than the Germans, and, and they had engineered this, this enormous ship. You have to think, I, I always thought uh, these, these things were quite small because this is old. These things are like three times the length of a 747. 
an absolutely enormous vessel that was inflated with, with helium or hydrogen and it would just float right across the ocean and it would make it from, from the continent of Europe over to America in less than three days. This was an amazing advance in travel technology of the time. But of course, Hindenburg, the great German aircraft, is pinned down in our history because it, filled with hydrogen, a, a flammable gas, was a floating bomb as, as it came into to America one day and it started to circle and try and find its, its place for, 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 for touchdown. It, it had a few small failings that just made it continue have to take a few more round trips and as it was coming down in, in its final attempt, a small spark caught fire to the end channel of hydrogen and the whole thing combusted like a hydrogen bomb in the air, burning alive like a furnace. Most of the people on board and it, it just plummeted, it free fell to the ground, it hit the ground, and those who survived were able to jump from the windows before the rest of them were cooked alive. Now, the, this historical event, I mean, that had happened before, but this one was so pinned in our history because it was such a grand vessel that went down, and because it was caught on video camera. For one of the first times ever, this kind of crash was caught on videotape and went around the world. And in a very similar uh, series of events, what we have today is, is the great and grand apostle Peter, very loudmouth, very impressed with himself, leader of the disciples, have this enormous, tragic, catastrophic crash and burn. And we see it take place step by step by step through the Gospels. And it's recorded, not just on video camera, not just in the 1930s for a few people to look up if you're weird like me and you find that stuff on YouTube, but for everybody who picks up the pages of Scripture will find throughout history the account of Peter's infamous crash and burn. Look at verse 66. We start to see the error, his, his first error. As, well, not his first error, but, but the first one we find in this passage at least. Peter was below in the courtyard. This is going to be a huge error because he already has been prophesied to Jesus, by Jesus, what he's going to do that night. He already knows he's going to betray him. He got told he's going to forsake him. He did. And then he got told he's going to betray him and he doesn't believe Jesus. Now, we're going to come back to this in a little bit. But, but here is Peter put himself in, 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 he's done it to himself. He put himself in the courtyard. He didn't need to be in the high priest's backyard that night when he's already failed 20 times with other things that Jesus has told him to do. But here's Peter. And I think before we start going into the details of what happens, and of course the lessons that we can draw out of it, we need to start realizing and, and remind ourselves at the beginning that Peter was a true Christian and he had not lost his salvation. Peter was a true Christian, born again. Jesus affirms that he had had the truth of who Jesus was revealed to him into his heart by God through the Holy Spirit. Jesus uh, spoke to Peter in such a way as we know Peter and the apostles, by Judas, was a born-again, justified, adopted saint. And yet, he is able to fall in such a horrible, horrible way. Now, if we don't remember this, we'll, the, 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 this account in front of us will lose its lessons for us. If we think that, well, well Peter couldn't have been a Christian because look at what he does then you will automatically be more careless about your own sins, your own likeliness to fall, because you think true Christians can't do horrible, infamous, terrible things like that. 
That's folly number one. What we're going to avoid today by reminding ourselves he was a true Christian. But let's remind ourselves also that he did not lose his salvation prior to doing this or because of doing this. Because that will then be, be the next downfall, not of, not of arrogance and failing to watch yourself, but of, but of fear and, and an un, unneeded anxiety that you might have that, that if you fall into the wrong sin, if you do the wrong thing, then you will lose your salvation before the throne of God. That also is not the case. Peter was a true Christian. He did not lose his salvation because in Scripture we have these two one of them's beautiful, one of them's so necessary, it becomes beautiful that it's in there, but it's an ugly reality. One beautiful thing that the scripture tells us, Peter himself will go on to write this, is that we are born again by God and are kept by God's power through our faith and our inheritance is undefiled and unblemished. In other words, Christians who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are so sealed by the Holy Spirit, kept in the Holy Family, that it is impossible for true Christians to lose their salvation. We'll call it perseverance of the saints or whatever you want to call it. This is the true gospel promise of Jesus that he said in John 6, that all those who come to me, I will by no means cast out. God loses none of his family. But the other opposite truth, if we want to call it that, the, 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 the composite truth that these things need to go well together, the complementary thing to, to keep in mind is the indwelling sin of the believer. The, Romans 8, Romans 7, Romans 6, uh, uh, many of the epistles will throw us back to this. First Peter himself, he'll remind us of the sins which wage war against our soul. The reality is that even though we've been born again into a new nature, so that Romans 6 will say we're slaves to righteousness, we're alive to God. We're dead to sin. We've, we've died to the world and the world has died to us. We are no longer as Christians. You are not under the dominion of sin. And I'm saying that no matter what your life looks like. Addicted for six months straight, you're still not under sin's dominion. You are choosing through your own neglect of the means of grace to free yourself from that because Jesus has declared that those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. If you're alive in Christ, sin has no dominion over you. I'm not even interpreting that. I'm just quoting Romans 6. No Christian has genuine power over him by sin or her by sin such that they cannot come free of it because Peter himself again will tell us, 2 Peter chapter 1, that you have all that you need for life and godliness. God has granted us all that is necessary for life and godliness in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have everything we need so that <coughs> we are born again. We are alive to God. We, are, we do have a new nature and, and a new, new affections and a new mind and all of this. And yet, sin still lives close at hand. And it is, as Paul says, it's, it's as if it's in our body. And as long as we are in this body, we are, we, are, we, are, we are always affected to some degree by sin's temptations. And so we are persevering by God's grace. He does not let anybody go. And yet until we die, we are in a body, we are in a flesh, we are in a mind and a soul that is still, that is still cursed to some degree, that is still wrestling with the, the inward temptations, the indwelling sin. These two beautiful Calvinistic truths are scriptural and will help us in our walk if we do hold fast to them instead of forgetting them like Peter no doubt did. 
There is no sin. As Peter's example shows to us, hear me carefully, there is no sin which a Christian is unable to commit. There is no such thing as a sin or a type of sin that is impossible for a Christian to commit. If we think that way, again, we will fall into the, 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 the trap of assuming there's, the, the, there's just things I can't do. I'm a true Christian. I don't need to be careful of not doing that. I'm a true Christian. I, I wouldn't fall into that trap. I'm a true Christian. We must never, ever think like that. Whether it's lying or thieving, Christians are able to sin in that way. Getting a mullet haircut, wearing Crocs in public. Christians can still do those things. Murder, while we're on the topic, abortion, racism, drunkenness, violence, fornication of any type and any uh, orientation, unbiblical divorce, pornography, vicious denial of Jesus like Peter does. A true Christian is technically able to do any of those things. Now, don't hear any allowance here. Don't hear a free ticket. Don't hear a check, a, a blank check to do what you please. We're not saying we may. We're saying that each of those are called anti-Christian, walking against the call of the gospel, denying Jesus, grieving the spirit, uh, uh, abusing the grace that is given us. That's all true, but theoretically and technically, I don't even need to be so technical, you know practically we are able to fall into those sins. The sins that a true Christian cannot commit is unrepentance hand in hand with unbelief. That's what a Christian can't do. We can even say that that had Judas been truly saved and, and had, had the, the eternal decrees of God been different, had they been, if there's a different universe, Judas, had he been a true Christian, still would have been able to be so in love with money, he sold Jesus and then come to repent and believe in the gospel promises and leave behind his love of money. Technically true. The problem with him was that he had unrepentance about his sin. He had unbelief about who Jesus was and didn't bring his sin to Jesus. This is the difference. And we need to remember this, lest we, we commit a certain sin and come to some kind of conclusion, I can't be a Christian because I did that. Rather, rather we should think, I can't be a Christian if I unrepentantly continue to do this. I can't be a Christian if I don't trust Jesus to forgive this. But continually, we are told in the New Testament, continually we will remind ourselves here at Hope Church to be in continual repentance and continually fan into flame your faith, your belief. Feed your faith with doctrine. Sustain your faith with the scripture. Hack and cut at your sin with the sword of the Spirit. I was just re reminded during that Spurgeon's devotional prayer that, that Anthony read for us to begin with, that, that Spurgeon used to speak of, of the, the Lord's Prayer teaching us praying each day for our daily bread. He says we love, like the, like the Jews in, 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 uh, in the wilderness, we love to try and store up our bread, have a great prayer time Monday, skip it Tuesday, but we got some manna from yesterday. But just like in the wilderness, trying to, trying to store the manna day after day makes it to spoil. We need daily bread, just as they needed to collect daily manna. We must not try and, try and run on the fumes of past days, but daily feed our faith with Scripture, hack at our sin with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
And if you have fallen into such a grievous sin, do not assume a lost salvation, but return to the Father who loves you. Repent of your sin for which Jesus died and believe the gospel promises that you are already forgiven. This is what Peter was, was dragged through the mud that day to learn this lesson of. We learn a second lesson of Peter. The second thing that we can learn from this horrible crash and burn is that the smallest of tolerated sin can be the true Christian's horrible downfall. The smallest of tolerated sin can become the true Christian's great downfall. They, they believe that, that what started the fire in the Hindenburg, when it exploded into a, into a fiery mass in the sky, was not, and you laugh at this, it was not the smoking rooms. Like, like they still had smoking rooms on that floating hydrogen bomb. They, they were safe. They had fireproof doors and they had vents and the rest, but they still had smoking rooms. <clears throat> they had smoking rooms, but it wasn't one of the cigarettes. It wasn't one of the lighters. It wasn't one of the smokers that did anything like that. They believed that what started the fire that exploded the Hindenburg was simply that as, the, as that vessel was, was doing some rounds close to the ground about 100 feet up, it just built up the, the smallest bit of static electricity. So that the smallest little, 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 uh, uh, little spark that came from that, a don't think compared to the vessel a small spark, but still one that would jump four meters across a room like an arc. No, 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 no. A small, tiny spark that you might just flinch at if it was to happen on your fingers. That was enough to be the downfall of this enormous vessel. The smallest spark can explode such a, such a large vessel. Even think in today's world. I mean, I mean the, the smallest bird flying can, can, if it hits the engine of a jet, can bring down that whole thing. Just a, just a small pebble, once it gets momentum, can, can create an avalanche that crushes whole villages. And just the smallest sin in the Christian's life and heart, if you don't bring it to mortification, to kill it, do you not confess it, bring it to the Lord Jesus Christ? If we do not do that with our sin, the smallest things can snowball, can avalanche, can chain react and explode our whole life. Peter, for him, it started with a simple lack of prayer, mingled with just a little bit of self-confidence. A good Christian on his best day, basically. Like we look at Peter and go, he just wasn't praying as much as he should have. And he was a little bit self-confident. That's all of us. We need, to, we need to just give Peter a bit of a break. That's, the, that's a good Christian these days on their best day. But it is because we leave ourselves such, such a low standard of godliness and we just excuse so much in our generation, a, a lack of holiness and productivity for the Great Commission because we just do that. We, we let ourselves get away with such a poor knowledge of Scripture in our homes, we, among our children, among ourselves, among our friendship circles. We, we just tolerate it and therefore we create ourselves a new normal. No, prayerlessness with self-confidence was a deadly mixture. It was hydrogen in the air with a spark. Peter is a historical crash and burn so that we never make the same excuses over our indwelling sin. And thirdly, not only does a, a small sin become the, the, the Christian's downfall if it's tolerated, but also his crash and burn had a very definite order. 
If you've ever watched the shows, read the books, uh, downloaded the documentaries, you've seen those uh, that after an air crash, uh, aircraft has crashed, they'll look for the the black box. That recording of all of the data and all of the information that went over the radio waves so that they can break down exactly what went wrong in exactly the right order so that they can make sure they never do those things again. Or they can troubleshoot and therefore solve things for the future. Well, so it is. This this section right here, verse 66 to 72 of Mark 14, is a little black box for us. It goes even further back into the earlier chapter. Peter has been crashing and burning for all of chapter 14. Because his first mistake, so number one, his crash and burn had a definite order. Number one, he did not heed Christ's word. Back in verse 38, if you have a Bible, swing back there. Back in verse 38, Jesus had told him to be watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. An encouragement and a warning to Peter right there. And then Jesus came and found Peter sleeping. He did not heed Christ's word. Even earlier on in verse 27, Jesus had already said, you will all fall away for it is written. And then in verse 31, Peter is here emphatically denying it, saying that Jesus is emphatically wrong. It's a pretty simple formula. If you're ever telling Jesus he's wrong, you're an idiot, you're wrong, repent, turn around, sew your mouth shut, Peter. Here he is, Jesus, emphatically being told that he is wrong. There is a difference, therefore, we need to bear out in this first thing that he did wrong. There is a difference between hearing and heeding the word of Jesus. The test of maturity is not not the test that you might pass. We need to realize that the, the test of maturity is not how much you know, how much you've heard, let alone how much you can teach. That's not even the test of maturity. How much you can pass it on and have people nod in agreement and and amazement as you explain the scriptures. That's not maturity if it is not followed up with the heeding of the truth. Heeding means, means hearing it, understanding it, believing it, and obeying it. So we have to ask ourselves, how much have you implemented what you have learned and what you know and what you have absorbed? It is not just about what you know, what you've taught, what you understand. Peter knew he would have answered all the tests correctly. He was probably rebuking the other disciples for sleeping before he took his kip. It's about whether we heed the words of Jesus. You don't need a master's in divinity from from an expensive seminary to do that. To heed is to fear God, listen to his commandments. That is the whole end of man. Heeding. He did not heed the words of Jesus. Secondly, he had self-confidence. This is both the cause and effect of not hearing the word. It's the cause in the sense that, uh, that, that with pride and with self-confidence, Peter thinks, I just don't need that word, Jesus. Very well spoken. I think the other 10 will, will, will forsake you, but I just won't. Pride stops us. Self-confidence stops us from hearing desperately the words of Jesus in Scripture. Verse 31, Peter has told Jesus that he is wrong. This is like watching the Hindenburg's first chamber of hydrogen explode. When Peter said that, you knew it was all going downhill. Peter took all of chapter 14 to crash, and, and we see it now that part of the effect. So, so pride is a cause that stops us from hearing the word of Christ. 
but self-confident pride is also an effect. See, it's a chain reaction. It's also an effect because the word has an ability to humble us. We read a line, we're just driven to our knees. We, we read a chapter and we're just breaking our heart open in repentance. The word has a humbling ability to us. And yet because he was not listening to the words of Christ, and if he had, he would have been so much more humble. But he was there so, so self-confident because he had not heeded the words of Jesus. Verse 47, therefore, look at chapter 14, verse 47. A great example of the self-confident Peter. One of those who stood by as Jesus was being arrested. Drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest. Good job, Peter. Tremendously self-confident. Filled with his own ability to do something because he had not listened to Jesus' command. You see, with the Hindenburg, the reason it was so explosive was because it used hydrogen. Now, we're not going to go back into high school chemistry. I, I know some of us didn't even pass that or even do that. Uh, uh, but, 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 but hydrogen is, is much more flammable than, than helium. And helium was what, what was usually used in the best of the, the airships of the day, except that the US of A was the only um, exporter and the only producer of helium in the day, and they refused to share their helium with Germany. And so here is Germany on, on, on the desperation of only its own resources. It filled its ship with the very explosive hydrogen. It became one of the reasons that the downfall was so tremendous. Peter has the same issue. Using all of his own resources, confident in what he could well up, he became so destructive. Christians know a Christian with self-confidence and little prayer and little prayer is flammable at its worst. Always take that warning. But, but don't we just have a, we have a better neighbor than the US of A, don't we? We have a better relationship with Jesus than Germany does with the US of A in the very hot and political 1930s. We have a friend to whom we can come and take all of our burdens and who gives to us everything we need so that we're not walking around in self-confidence. We can come to Jesus and receive humility. We can come to Jesus and receive the Spirit's help. We can come to Jesus and receive wisdom so that we do not crash and burn like Peter. We have his resources to draw on. The more self-confidence you have, the more flammable you are. And thirdly, so, so he started by not heeding Christ's word. Then he was self-confident. And thirdly, he prayed too little. He prayed too little. In that garden that night when he was told to pray, I'm sure he muttered a few, few phrases. Like he'd learned the Lord's Prayer. He probably read half a page of his Valley of Vision. I'm sure he did something, but then he nodded off to sleep. His prayer did not match his predicament. These are the two things we always need to keep in mind. I think this will help our prayer life. Your prayer life always needs to match and stay on par with two realities. First of all, the gospel call to which we have been called your prayer life needs to match, needs to live up to, needs to, needs to reach up to the resources we have been given. Use what you have been given or what you have will be taken away, we learn. So, so we should always be seeking for our prayer life to match the gift that we've been given in the Holy Spirit. Of course, that will be an ongoing, increasing, uh, exponential relationship. But also, our prayer life needs to match the reality of our internal and external temptations. 
If any of those, those uh, gauges are off, we will crash and burn. If our, if our levels, if our fuel levels are not at the same degree of the distance we have to travel, we'll, we'll crash and burn. These are all very simple analogies. If your external predicament, like your best friend being taken to the crucifixion, or, or maybe it's something in your workplace, or you're getting called into HR for something you said about Jesus, or maybe, maybe your marriage is on the rocks, or maybe your children are, are falling and questioning the faith. Whatever it is, your internal prayer life must match your external predicament and your internal sin. So that the more you realize how sinful you are, the more you realize how weak you can be and how prone to falling and wondering you are, so you will pray more. Your prayer life must match your internal and external predicament and it must match the gift that we've been given by the Holy Spirit. He met neither standard and so his spirit was willing but his flesh was weak. He did not pray and that's chamber two of the Hindenburg exploding. And then fourthly, as we said back in verse 66, look at verse 66 of chapter 14. He entered into temptation intentionally. And Peter was below in the courtyard. He walked through the gates after. So he's done, he's done the wrong thing at every point tonight. It's been a bad night for Peter. Thursday night, 33 or so AD. He took out the sword instead of making peace. He slept instead of praying. Then he, he ran away instead of standing firm with Jesus. And then when he'd made it far enough and realized, I'm just like the other 11 cowards, I know, I'll be better than them, he then goes back to follow Jesus instead of just repenting and realizing how weak he is. And he goes all the way into the courtyard where he is now at his worst temptation. Why did he go back? <laughs> Why did he need to? He had no need to be there. He, 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 he knew that if he couldn't even kill one servant, he wasn't going to be able to take on a whole Roman cohort in their own courtyard. There is no reason that Peter should be here except for the fact that he had something to prove. He entered into temptation deeper because he thought that he could handle it. He didn't listen to Jesus' words about his own weakness. He was confident about his own strength. He was praying, he was not praying, and so he was not keenly aware of his own weakness. He did not pray, lead me not into temptation as Jesus had taught him to pray, but instead ran into the opportunity for evil. And he is in here a, a picture of so many of us. How many of us continually keep committing the same sin? You refuse to admit and accept your weakness, and you try to prove something to Jesus. Might be along the lines of, I know I, I sinned the last time I came here or, or went into this situation, but, you know, I'm not one of those weak Christians. I'll prove it this time. I'll, I'll be better this time. Last time I was with this person, maybe a girlfriend, a boyfriend, somebody from work, or just, just a friend that leads you down the wrong road. You know, you know, last time I was in this company, I fell into temptation. I just need to get one notch on my belt where I beat this temptation. Then I'll know I'm a good, mature Christian. I'll be able to go back and pray with a little bit of confidence once I've bettered this temptation. I have not yet admitted my need for this, for this, for this almost addiction, this sin that I'm committing night after night, this, this thing that I continually do, whether it be drunkenness or pornography. I'm, I'm not going to go and seek help for this. I'm not going to confess my absolute need, even though I have a track record of absolute failure. I'm sure I can do it. I'm sure now I'm strong. I'll be able to do it by myself. Jesus will be all the more pleased to have me back once I've got one success on my belt. 
I've had a failing, the hard, desert-like, dry marriage, a, a relationship that is, that is not gospel-showing, children that are not seeing the love of the father through their father and mother. This is on me, but I can do this. I'm a, I'm a man, darn it. I do not need help on this. All of these are the repetition of Peter's error. Trying to prove something to Jesus instead of just resting in Jesus. You don't need to prove a single thing to God. You don't need to prove a single thing to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are infinitely unimpressive. You're welcome. Get a bumper sticker, put it on your mirror, tattoo it on your eyeballs. You are infinitely unimpressive. You have to stop trying. You are not being awaited on with a father that is less than the prodigal father that demands, like he'll, he'll bring you back, his arms are wide, he'll, he'll get the lamb, he'll give you a ring, he'll put the coat on you, but he'll check first before you come in the house. Did you not screw up at least one time? Did you at least do something in your own strength that is somewhat impressive? I'd hate to have you back and tell the whole story in front of all my friends and you fail every time. Surely there's, there's at least one success. No, P Peter felt like this. Peter felt like there was something in him he needed to be able to come and accomplish and conquer and then bring to Jesus. But Jesus says exactly the opposite way around. Come to him, repentance, faith, obedience, then he leads you to conquering. And it's not by letting you run headlong into your own temptations. We have so much freedom when we realize that Jesus is our friend to whom we need to prove nothing. He tells us to believe what he has said of you in the gospel. Believe what he has said of you about your indwelling sin. Pray and watch for your sin. And then in his strength, obey and conquer. And so, ignoring that, this, this black box that we've now pulled apart started with, with not heeding Christ's commands. Secondly, was being self-confident. Thirdly, was not praying enough. And then fourthly, entering into his own temptation. We can see now the downward spiral that this all took and we can just see it exploding in front of our eyes. And so look at verse 67. Peter was warming himself. And one of the servant girls, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene. Now, I'm, if, if I had not read this before and I know Peter and a servant comes up to him again, I'm half expecting him to prove himself and just lop her head off dance around with a decapitated head. Say, see, I did it. I stood up to another servant. But he doesn't. He's actually lost all of that self-confidence and now he's just crumbling and buckling under the, the, the interrogation of a rather polite servant girl. Like the felon my boss just arrested on, on terrorism crimes, you're his right-hand man and she's just making conversation with him. Not even a scary situation. You were one of his friends, weren't you? You were with the Nazarene Jesus. But, verse 68, he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Verse 69, the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, so now you've got her making conversation around the fire. Everybody's sort of talking to him. It's now conversational in quite a group. And they're saying, I'm, I'm sure <coughs> this man is one of them. Verse 70, but again, he denied it. Verse 71, after he was accused yet another time of being one of them, and this time they got his accent. They said, you're a Galilean. You can't pronounce this word or that word. You know, you sound like a Galilean. <clears throat> but he began, verse 71, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man of whom you speak. 
So this is now, he's, he's, he's cursing himself. We, we spoke about this in James chapter 5. He's saying, may God do thus and thus and thus to me if I am lying. Like he's calling a divine accountability partner to this curse. He said, may I be destroyed if I'm lying at the moment. And he swore by the holy God and the gold in the temple, I do not know the man to whom you speak, which is not even a believable lie. Everybody knew Jesus, but not this guy. Peter is filled with fear because of his self-confidence, prayerlessness, refusing to believe the words of Jesus and his, de- his desire to try and prove himself. And at that moment, the second time of the night, the rooster crowed, just as Jesus said, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Peter heard the rooster crying. The other gospels tell us that at that moment, he looks across the courtyard and Jesus is being dragged from Annas' room where he was tried over into the cell that he was going to be kept for until the morning. Jesus, as we read, has been beaten, has been spat upon, has been hit with rods and mocked. He's now walking with part of his, not walking, he'd be getting dragged because he'd be next to paralyzed swollen, blue, bruised face, can probably only just see out of one of his eyes, spit dripping off of him, beard half plucked out, feet dragging behind him, hands in chains, and he looks up and makes eye contact with Peter. And at that moment, Peter realizes he finally heeds. This is what God does through our sin and its consequences. He drives home what we are not willing to hear when he just says it. He drives home what Jesus had already said. You are going to run away and you did it. You're not going to be able to save me though you're trying. You are going to deny me three times. It hits him like a, like a barrel of bricks. And it says there in verse 72, and he broke down and wept. He didn't just cry. He didn't just regret himself. He didn't just realize he was wrong and walk away and go, all right, I'll know better next time. I'll wait till Sunday. Give him a, give him a fist bump apology and we'll all be over it. He broke down. We're not even told that he runs away before he breaks down. He simply crumbles. Everything within him is broken as he weeps over his own sin and the, and the, and the denial of this beautiful, glorious, faithful friend, Jesus, who doesn't point to him. Like Jesus doesn't use that moment to say with, his, with the breath that he has in his lungs, he is my friend, he is one of my disciples, that's Peter. He keeps silent. He looks at him, he's dragged away and continues his horrible humiliation. Peter runs. At this lesson we realize, as we sort of come, come to the close here, that, that God, God uses these moments, the effects and consequences of our sin, to bring us to repentance. In the, in the true Christian's life, terrible sin brings true grief. It's in fact one of the signs of life. When when there has been deep sin, a true Christian will at some point, once that repentance kicks in, maybe because God brings something horrible into our life to wake us up, maybe because he drives us down deep in repentance, maybe because we just decide to open our Bible and read it like we should and we are broken under the weight of our sin. God does that to true Christians, not as an accusing sign of you are guilty, you are false, you are dead, you are an enemy, but rather as a sign of true life. A corpse doesn't vomit when you pump poison into its gut. A living person will hurl when that poison strikes their stomach. 
A living person will not, will not get a fever when the virus comes into their body. Sorry, a dead person will not get a fever, run hot and convulse when a, fe- when a virus goes into its body, but a living person will. And that sickness is not a sign of death. That fever is a sign that the body is fighting. The inward warfare that we have against our lack of assurance, against our sin and against our senses of guilt after we've sinned, that is a sign of life, the immune system working, the spirit convulsing within us so that we do not do those things that we wanted to do. But sometimes it's not just internal guilt. Sometimes what God lets happen to our life is the full consequence of our sin without the punishment of it. This is the glory of, a, of, of the Christian life. Let me, let me just remind you here. You may receive consequences without punishments for sin. If you're not in Jesus, you don't have those two things divorced. You're always receiving the consequence of your sin, destroyed marriage, lost work, lost income, sickness, death, whatever it is, with the punishment of the sin. That is behind all of the natural consequences is also God's anger and fury. But for the Christian... We can receive consequence and still be receiving God's grace. Maybe we're stepped out of office in a church or, or usefulness in a ministry. Maybe we lose our job. Maybe we, we, we've wasted all of our money. Maybe we've duly and biblically ended the covenant relationship and they have right to leave us. Maybe somebody dies. Maybe we, we have committed the abortion and it's un, un, not, not reversible. Maybe we've done something horrible, irreversible. The consequences find us and yet... The punishment of God is not against you. The punishment of God was against the Lord Jesus. To you, you receive grace. Jesus looks at you as he looked at Peter and reminds you of his forgiveness, even though in life you may receive the, the painful consequences. We, we can escape neither. As a Christian, you can't escape the consequences, but you cannot escape the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter was this tremendous example for us, and we know that he will go on to write the book of First and Second Peter. We know that he's going to go on and, and, in fact, lead somebody else to write this book that we have, Mark. But do you know Mark's life story? Do you know that John Mark, this guy, the cousin of Barnabas, who was a missionary in Acts, was going around with Paul, preaching the gospel, and at some point, he just left he ditched. He couldn't do with the pressure. He couldn't do with the persecution. And, and he, he, he left and left this hole in the missionary team. And it, it ruined a part of the ministry that they were on so much so that the next time, Paul would not take him with him. He was untrustworthy, could not be, be trusted to come along on the mission. Mark was left behind a shameful, shameful man. And by the end of his life, when Paul is locked up in prison, he's writing letters. And he says to Timothy, please bring Mark He is of so much help to me. At some point in that gap between Acts 15 and 2 Timothy 4, at some point there, actually we know from church history and portions of the New Testament, Mark meets Peter, they minister together. What do you think Peter was telling Mark all that time along? I know what it's like to deny. I know what it's like to fall. I know what it's like to stuff up. I know what it's like to feel useless. Look to the grace of Jesus. So that by the end of Paul's life, Mark is one of his best mates and missionary comrades. Here's the grace of Jesus. Christian, you are in sin if you are in unrepentance and allowing a tolerated sin to continue. Jesus commands you to stop. Not asks, not reminds you he'll give you a cuddle tomorrow. He demands you as your Lord. Repent or there will be painful consequences. You are sinning against the law and sinning against grace. 
But Christian, if you return, you will not be received by a harsh and hateful father. You will be received by a merciful and loving savior, the Lord Jesus at the right hand of his loving father, giving to you the fullness of his loving spirit. And non-Christian, if you're not in Christ and you live in your sin, you, 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 you hate the authority of Christ, you hate the laws of God, to you, that same mercy is on offer. You're commanded. You're commanded. Now, repent of your sin or you'll be punished. Repent now, believe in Jesus, receive his grace, and you can escape every iota of the sin and the wrath that you deserve, just like Peter. You don't think denying the, the highest Lord of the whole world would deserve an eternal fury of wrath? Of course. But Jesus took that on himself. Jesus took your sin so that you might believe and be forgiven. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. As, as paradoxical as it is, we thank you for the downfall of Peter. We thank you for this, this, this crash and burn that, that we saw happen as it's recorded for us in Scripture so that we can take comfort in our, in our shameful crashes and burns, in our, even in our planned sins, in our moments and periods of unrepentance, Lord. We can see this example of Peter be stopped before all of the consequences of our sins need to, need to find us out. We can stop. We can stop before we enter it. We can, we can stop at every point and turn around. And we must stop. Father God, please, for those in this room who are, who are in the middle of some sin, planning some sin, conniving some kind of way to get away with sin, wherever we're at on that spectrum, Lord, please arrest their souls. As you, as you arrested the heart of Peter, if they've been praying for a sign or been praying for help, may this word of God in Mark 14, may it be the rooster crowing. May it arrest their attention and bring them to repentance for the kindness of our God leads us to repentance. Father God, for those Christians, would you give them faith to believe that as they return to you, they will receive forgiveness and mercy. Father God, we praise you for the, for the powerful work that your Holy Spirit uh, does in us. We thank you for that so many of us can also look back on, on other parts of our life, times of our life, periods of our walk that have been horrible and sinful and, and riddled with, with, with crimes against your law. And yet we can say, though we are not all that we ought to be, we are thank you for the progress that you've brought to us. We thank you that as Psalm 128 tells us, we can walk under the blessing of what you give because your law, obedience to your law does bring blessing for those who are already in Christ Jesus. Father God, I also pray for, for those who are lost, those who have not believed in Jesus, who are, who are much more like Judas than like Peter. They are unlikely to come to Jesus because they have not repented to him. They won't find mercy there. They'll, they'll continue to go on and meet their end. Father God, I pray that you would give to them a heart of faith to believe in the Lord Jesus, trust him with their sin, Father God, may you give to them a heart of faith to trust in his sacrifice and may you give them a new soul, a new spirit, a new life, a new mind, a new Lord, a new life. May you be forgiving and merciful in our midst this morning for we trust your gospel promises. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray all of these things. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.